0: If you have a Bible tonight and you want to read in our scripture reading, we're going to take a reading from the book of Luke, chapter 12. The book of Luke, chapter 12. I might make a few preliminary comments before we look to our scripture today. Um, I don't know what uh, caused this to happen a number of months ago. Uh, But a number of months ago, um, I was, I want to say, in a good place with the Lord, if you're allowed to say that, not that it could not have been improved upon, because it could have been, uh, but I felt like um, my thoughts were continually drifting back towards things of the Lord and the scriptures and... um, Again, I don't want to, that to sound wrong. I think, I hope you know what I mean whenever I'm saying that. And um, I was at home, and suddenly this um, thought came to my mind. And it was about something, I, to be honest, I don't even recall what it is right now. And it set my mind racing on that subject. And that subject in particular had nothing to do with the Lord or the scriptures or where my mind had been for a number of days. And I almost did what I typically do, and that is fall prey to that thought. And for whatever reason, the Lord brought to my attention, don't go there. And I paused for a moment, and I was more aware at that moment than I think I had ever been. Um, And and you may not agree with this, and that's okay. I felt like it was a demonic force trying to steal my mind in that moment. Because I know myself well enough to know if, if I had to let that thought settle a little more the next thing I would have known, it would have been days and days and days that my mind would have settled upon that thought in some way. I tend to overanalyze things perhaps, and and it, it, it struck me so clearly just how easily that I fall prey to things that are unspiritual. Now, whether that was a demonic force or was that was just my sinful nature, I don't guess really matters. But I suppose I say that in relation to what we're going to talk about tonight, because I want you to know if you're lost this evening, and for that matter, if you're saved this evening, that one of the chief things that Satan is after is your mind. Because as he can orient your mind, he can orient your person. And so often I am concerned with in myself and with my children primarily, but also with all of God's people, this new way of being, this new way of functioning that has to do with technology. Now, we could talk about all the idleness that goes on there, and we could talk about the abuses of it. But perhaps even more fundamental than that is it controls our minds. If you're listening to some conservative talk show host, and they're speaking truth, And so you get, if you're like me, you get riled up. And you pound the desk and you say, that's right. And you hear all the pundits from the opposite side and the commentary given on that foolishness at times. And you get all riled up. And if you're like me, that riling up from within eventually makes its way out. And the next thing I know, it's my conversation. And then I'm with a group of people and it continues to broaden in its conversation. And then I know it's gotten really bad when I've told my wife those things because she's not so concerned with it. But I need an outlet. And so I just want to keep talking about it. And more and more I'm realizing the dangers of those things. The same could be said of sports or some hobby that you Ascribed to that you want to talk about and listen to. The danger of so many of those things and having those things at our fingertips is that they govern our minds. And not all truth is equal. There are certain things that I believe politically are true, whether it's in political philosophy, whether it's in economics. But that truth is not on the same plane as spiritual truth. And although it might be my civic duty, although it might even be, we could argue, a biblical command, perhaps, to be acquainted with what's going on in our republic and to vote in accordance with the biblical worldview, we ought not to let those lesser truths consume us. The same could be said of your finances tonight. There are many people that, as we look at the scripture text we're going to take, could take an extreme view or could have an extreme response to some of the things we might talk about. And you could walk away and said, you know, Brother Brad said, don't save money, don't store up money, don't do anything in regards to money because it's all sinful. And that's not what I'm saying tonight. And what Satan will try to embellish in your mind is that I'm going to an unbiblical extreme so that you might write off the particulars of what Jesus said. But the reality, whether we like what Jesus said or not, is that we ought not to be consumed with anything worldly. Our thoughts do not need to dwell on this earth our thoughts need to be in heaven our thoughts our let me put it in a different way our affections ought to be spiritual and as the text that we're not going to get to later that jesus puts before these people one of the reasons is because where your treasure is there will your heart be also And there is nothing more valuable that a human being can treasure than Jesus Christ. And so my affections, tracing back to my mind, tracing back to the things that I allow to come to my eyes and come into my ears, ought to as much as possible be godly things. That's why it's so important who we associate with. Not just that they are upright and moral. Those are necessary things. I hope the associations you have at work. I hope the friendships that you have with your neighbors and acquaintances. I hope that you associate with moral people. People who don't take the Lord's name in vain. People who don't speak of things that ought not to be spoken of. But I hope that you are not satisfied with moral acquaintances. Because generally with a moral acquaintance, there is a inability to speak of spiritual things with those people. That yes, you may at a surface level begin to communicate and share with them. And perhaps God has placed you in their life to try and appeal to their their spiritual state. And I would never say not to uh, uh, have those associations. And yet what I have found in my own life is that whenever I perceive that the person that I'm trying to have a relationship wants to build up a wall when it involves spiritual things, when it involves eternal things, I find myself having a difficult time developing a deep relationship with that person. Because I don't want to occupy our conversation constantly with things that eternally don't matter, even if they're right and moral. No, I want to be in association with people. I want to have friendships with people that whenever my mind begins to stray, when my mind becomes discouraged about spiritual things, they will initiate things that my affections might be placed back on what truly matters. I would pay as much money as it would take to have a good spiritual friend, they're invaluable. Now what Jesus is going to give us insight to here in this scripture is he is given all these warnings up to this point. In the previous chapter, and we know that this is a continuation of the previous chapter because verse 1 tells us that this is in the same circumstance in the set, setting here. And so we know he has just spoken to a bunch of religious elites, the Pharisees. He has chided them as well as a group of lawyers. A lawyer rose up and he asked a question. And so he responds to him. And and actually the lawyer didn't ask a question. He said, Lord, we, we feel like you're insulting us. And so Jesus gives a response to that. And then... There are a number of people Jesus interaction with these Pharisees has drawn a crowd and they're pressing on one another trying to get close no doubt or it's likely I would say I don't doubt it that these people had come because they see if you've ever known two people who have a disagreement with one another and when you're in the presence of one they have a very convincing argument and then you get in the presence of the other who believes the exact opposite of what that person expressed and you get over there and you say well that's pretty convincing too. And so what you want to do if you're like me at times is I want to bring the two heavyweights of my life together and watch them duke it out. I want to see and listen to what they have to say that I might then be convinced as to what who is speaking is true. That's how I perceive is what's going on here. The Pharisees have a degree of control over the minds of the people. They have been preaching all of these various things, or teaching these things in the synagogues, and they have a monopoly on the religious power in the community. And then this man, who has power, no doubt that has come from God, is what uh, Brother Harvey brought out to us, that Nicodemus said, that even those people were acquainted. There is something powerful about this man. It was not a mere intellectual argumentation. There was something palpably powerful about what he said that resonated more deeply than the mind on the hearts of the hearers. And now these two are talking to one another. And Jesus, and because of that, all these people begin to gather. insomuch that it says in verse 1, they're pressing on, they're stepping on one another, trying to hear what's going on. And so at one point when Jesus is finished, giving his response to these religious people, he turns to the crowd and he turns to the disciples. And he begins to give them warning. And one of the things that he warns them about, as insulting as this sounds, is he says, don't be like those people I just talked to. They're hypocrites. They're concerned with external religion and not with what is going on in the heart. And so Jesus warns them about that type of hypocrisy. In other words, don't play church. Don't play being a Christian. When on the inside, your heart is far removed from righteousness and from God. He gives other warnings there. He talks about not being ashamed of Christ. There's a number of things that I won't get to all those uh, tonight that he gets to. In the midst of all this, a man shouts out a question. Now again, I can relate to this. Because there have been times, even when preachers are up preaching, that I have a great respect for, and I'm listening to what they're saying, and I don't necessarily disagree with them. I could say about Brother Harvey the last few nights, he has spoken about some deep spiritual things, and there were points where he said things where I wanted to say, hold on, stop right there, I have a question I need to ask you. Because if what you're saying is true here, then what does this mean? And it's not a point of... Disagreement it's a point of clarification. I want to understand more deeply the truth. Now this man the attitude of his heart based on his question I don't necessarily think that was the case. It seems as though he has an ulterior motive regardless of whether he does or not, we're going to pick up our reading where Jesus is in the middle of teaching these people not to be like the Pharisees, and this man interjects this question in the middle of Jesus' teaching in verse 12, or excuse me, in verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. It says this. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he might, excuse me, that he divide the inheritance with me and he said unto him, man, who made me a judge or a divider, an arbiter over you? That's what a divider means, is just an arbiter. And he said unto them, so now he turns and he back faces the crowd. So he spoke to that man, now he's gone back to the crowd to continue his instruction in verse 15. Take heed, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. That'll conclude our reading this evening. And we're going to title our message from verse 20. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. You read it this evening, or we read it in your hearing. This man asks a question. Jesus is not interested in trying to be an arbiter of this disagreement. Whether it was so that he could extort his brother... Whether it was because his brother was being unfair, we don't know. But Jesus has no interest in trying to make a decision in this particular case. But what he does is he pivots to the crowd, and he highlights a truth that I want to begin tonight by saying, this is not some unique thought. Let me put it in a different way. This man is not an uncommon man. I would actually argue quite the opposite. I would say that what this man's mind was set upon, based upon Jesus' pivot to the people, and what Jesus begins to discuss, based on how Jesus responds, I would say, this man is extremely covetous. He loves worldly things, and he wants more stuff. And tonight as we examine what this man thinks, I don't want us to place as we may often when we begin to hear in the scriptures about these people who have some sort of a negative response to Jesus. Very often when I listen to messages like that, I place that on somebody far away, or I even think it has perhaps somebody else in the audience that I know. Very rarely whenever you're listening to the scriptures, your first thought of your sinful mind, hey, that might be me. But I want us to know tonight that I would argue in our culture, in our day, with prosperity abounding, more people's minds are like this man's than are not like this man's. More people tend in a consumer society that has so many things at our fingertips. More people's minds today just completely revolve around the accumulation and the enjoyment of ease and pleasure. I'm tempted to say than ever before. Because it's so accessible and in historical terms, it's so cheap. Never in such a time has there been such mass production of things and prices brought so low where the average standard of living in our country, despite this time of an economic difficulty, despite inflation, yet still we're finding there are so many gidgets and gasmos, there's so many things that are available to us that it is truly mind-boggling what we have access to compared to even those of you that are older today and how you grew up. The thought that you can press a button and within just two days, almost anything can be delivered right at your doorstep. I remember one day we, my, my wife and I ordered something and she ordered it at I don't know what time. It was like seven or eight in the morning. And it showed, we lived in Indianapolis at this point or just south of Indianapolis at this point, and it showed that that item was in Lexington, Kentucky. By nighttime. was at our house for free didn't pay for shipping wasn't a rush and I just couldn't get over that how is that even possible that some random item could be at my doorstep and because those things are so cheap and because those things are at our fingertips and because we are continuously inundated with our need of those things Do you not think that our mind is constantly brought back to what we want, what we need, and what we don't have? And do you not think that that might affect the state of our heart and what we desire? I believe absolutely it does. This man is not some anomaly. I would say he's sitting here with us tonight. He is a man who, the Bible says, it told us in verse 16, he had this stuff, as I was studying this, it says, it uses even the word country to describe what he had. So he must have been like a king of some sort, at least that's what the commentator said, or or at least some of the Greek that I was reading said, it it indicates that he was a man that had amassed great wealth, almost like he had his own uh, area that he ruled. And one year, it brought forth a whole lot. I want to pause for a moment and say this. When something like that happens, what's our initial response? This is great. Yeah. This is wonderful. I'm so glad that I've gotten ahead. Right? Perhaps you've, from some miscellaneous source, God allowed you to accumulate a lot. And in one earnings, you get a bonus at the end of the year because you've produced a whole lot and you're thrilled at what you've gotten. But remember, with everything you've gotten, there is a temptation that that thing will begin to control us. And we must guard against that, that whenever we begin to see great accumulation, when we begin to see great riches and things come to us, let us beware knowing that covetousness is natural to our hearts. And that we might begin to treasure that thing above what we ought. This man, that year, it brought forth a whole lot. And then the scriptures does something that we would only know if Jesus told us. Like a prophet can't tell us this. A preacher can't tell us this. The only man that could tell us this is Jesus. He reads the man's mind. The Bible and Brother Harvey quoted this the other day. He said um, that our thoughts are naked under the eyes of whom with whom we have to do. Naked and open. I think that's in the book of Hebrews. I'm not quoting that all correctly, but it's open to him. And it tells us in the Old Testament that those things that are in secret are as though to God just like they're done in the complete light. And so let us understand where our thoughts at, although we may strain greatly to conceal where our thoughts and where our mind is at to other people so that they might not view us as covetous, God sees clearly precisely what our thoughts are, how much time that we spend coveting and desiring. God sees it just as openly as if you were to speak it with your mouth and write it down. God knows it. I would say God is even aware of it when we're not. Like, have you ever caught yourself thinking about things and you didn't even realize you were thinking about it that much? You say, well, I shouldn't be thinking about that. God knows every moment that we consume thinking about those things. This man, Jesus, zooms in and he gives the people this perception they would not otherwise have. And it's a revealing perception. And I think Jesus did it not because he was trying to reveal the thoughts of that man, he was trying to express to the people, I know what your thoughts are too. And he continues in the text, and, and then we find some things the man is thinking about. Three verses. And if I counted correctly, 11 times he refers to himself in the first person. Isn't that amazing? In three short verses, he says, I, and my, and I, and my, and then the other time he uses the word soul. So the first thing that we know the man is thinking about is himself. Now, why is that a bad thing? Well, the Bible teaches us that the root of all sin is self. There is not a sin that we can extract from being traced back to self. And so the man is constantly thinking about self. Now, again, here's the danger in our culture. If you're here your you today, what you're going to be overcome with in almost every outlet. And if we're not careful, even parents are beginning to eat away or, or indulge the, the culture, the toxic cultural thought process. And they're beginning to feed as though kids are the center of everything. And it's a dangerous thing to do because if a kid senses that their parents' life completely revolves around them, then they're going to believe that the world at large ought to revolve around them as well. And when the world doesn't revolve around them, they're going to feel massive disappointment that the world is not all about them. And they're going to continuously be pushed away from the gospel message because what the gospel tells us is in direct contradiction to that truth. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, it's not about you at all. Everything is about the Lord. And your life is meant to be crucified, killed, put to death on a daily basis in order that God, through Christ, might live through you. And so the more we, you know, I heard it here not too long ago, this, this parent almost, I don't even know how to describe it, but they were talking to their child, and they said that their child was spoiled to their child's face, but there was this uncomfortable acceptance and glee that their child was spoiled, and their child knew it, and they knew it. And it just kind of caused me to recoil a little bit, because I thought, how dangerous. How dangerous. How dangerous that already in the home and it's accepted thing that that kid is all about them and what their wants are. And that there's not alarms within the parents' mind to say we've got to teach them the opposite of that because it's the complete opposite of the way that it really ought to be. Here this man we know by the way that he is speaking, he's completely thinking about himself. That's the first thing we learn about his response, his thoughts. Here's another thing that we, we learn about his thoughts. He's not thinking about God at all. Not at all. Here's how we know this. This year, I planted a garden. And you all know if you've planted vegetable gardens, there are some things that are dependent upon you. But ultimately, it's dependent upon the Lord. I mean, I think especially farmers get that sense perhaps more than most, right? Because as we went through, what was it, 22 days here in Bowling Green, or at least out by my house, I think it was 22 days where there was no rain. And there were so many things that you could do to keep your vegetables alive, but after a certain period of time, there's nothing you can do. That's why in the Bible we see over and over in the Old Testament, a drought was such an awful thing. Because ultimately what a farmer knows, unless God blesses the weather, unless God blesses it, nothing is going to grow. And if nothing grows, then whenever the time of harvest comes, when the winter time comes, when there's no plants being grown, we're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. This man of all people should have known as someone who owned, and it implies here that he had owned this land, more. he had owned it before just this season. Because it's saying a season came when he had plenty. So here it comes plenty. And he doesn't ascribe that success to the Lord whatsoever. No, he says, me. Because of what my field has produced. Because of what the works of my hands have accomplished. And so this this man is not only thinking of himself, but there's also the entire complete absence of thinking about what God has done. That's just in one frame of mind. Then we find he's contemplating the future. And yet what has been done, he does not give credit to God as if God is the source of that. And then when he contemplates what he is going to do, God is still nowhere in the picture. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones. And I'm going to store all of these goods, store them up. Setting them aside. And so, God is nowhere in his thought process. He's not thinking about the poor. He's not thinking about tithing it. He's not not thinking about any of those things in giving gratitude and thanksgiving back to God whatsoever. No, he's still stuck on self. Then, he continues and... He begins to speak to himself. He says, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So then he starts thinking about the future. He says, soul, your future is going to be great. Yesterday, my wife and I, when we first got married, she always says that she moved into a bachelor's pad, because she did, We right? lived there in this little apartment called Polo Run. If you haven't heard yet, yesterday, uh, there was a shooting in Indianapolis, and the gentleman that did it lived in Polo Run. And he went to the mall I've been to hundreds of times. Just yesterday, at 3.30, my older sister was at. And, for reasons yet to be known, that young 20-year-old man decided to take some people's lives. Four people died yesterday. A young 30-year-old man who has children died yesterday. Some 50-year-old something man and a 37-year-old wife died yesterday. The 20-year-old shooter died yesterday. 12-year-old girl was injured yesterday. Place that frequented every day. Place that from my vantage point isn't somewhere in some dangerous city. Just a normal Mall. It's always interesting to me whenever big things have happened in my life. How I've always—and this is maybe a strange thought to have—perhaps you've had the same. I don't know, but I've always thought about how just an hour before it happened, I had no idea. Like my life was going along just completely normal, and I was planning all those normal thoughts for the future, and I was thinking about the next day, and then an event occurs which is life-changing. And just sometimes I'll marvel looking back, and I'll say, just an hour before I was so naive. And then that happened. And it completely changed the course of my life. Well, that's what it was for dozens and dozens and dozens of people yesterday. They didn't die, many of them. But the course of their life was forever changed. Unbeknownst to them just moments earlier. What we found out of the facts yesterday is that it was just in the food court. So imagine these people just casually dining in on a Sunday afternoon. Perhaps anticipating work the next day. Now again, this is not in some faraway place. This is where I grew up. My sister was there yesterday. You see, this man, from his vantage point, from his finite, limited ignorant vantage point as to what tomorrow holds had come in to a great many things and because of that was planning for such a bright hopes for tomorrow. But God knew something completely different. And that was that that very night God was going to require his soul from him. And here's the reality that plays out every single day thousands of times. You know, it, it's strange because because there are so many billions of people, which that number billions is just, it's more than what you and I can imagine. Because there are so many billions of people in the world, and because the likelihood that something like that would happen just percentage-wise to us, as if we were doing a random chat chance by rolling a dice, we think, well... That's true, Brother Brad. I know that's possible. But the likelihood of it is very unlikely if you run statistics and you're exactly right. It is if it was up to chance. But when we're born and when we die is not up to chance, it's up to providence. God determines these things. And the Bible teaches us, as Brother Harvey quoted last night, that we are all sustained by the very word of his power. You are breathing, inhaling, and exhaling for one reason only, and that is because Jesus upholds your breath by the word of his power. You are not set on some expiration date. And we find in the Old Testament that Hezekiah, God had said, you're going to die from this sickness. And then God, in in essence, and I know this is a sticky thing to say, changed his mind and said, I'm going to extend and give you an additional 15 years to your life. And God has the prerogative to decide with each of our lives, as he so chooses, the time of our death. And does our behavior have anything to do with that? I don't know. It seems as though, and I say this carefully, that part of God's response is the attitude, the heart of this man. Just in the same way as Hezekiah. Hezekiah is broken. Hezekiah is praying. And god it says God heard his prayer and gave him an extra 15 years of life. This man's heart is so self-absorbed. This man's heart is set upon a prosperous life moving forward that he is completely neglecting the consideration of eternal spiritual things. And it's a detriment. It's a great detriment. It's an eternal detriment to his thoughts. You know, I've heard people before I had a plumber, I think I've told the church once, that came to my house, and he was an atheist, but he kept talking, whenever we got to discussing things, you could tell he had thought a whole lot about the God question. And I was listening to what came out of his lips, and it was all, you know, these arguments that atheists come up with, but when he left, I was very encouraged. And here's the reason I was encouraged, because eternal things were on his mind and I saw that as very encouraging although many of the conclusions he was coming to were completely wrong and were the opposite of what the Bible teaches what I could tell is that the man was digging and digging and digging he was concerned about spiritual things he had upon his mind death he had upon his mind is there something more than just the chemicals and the synapses firing in my brain is there more to this and you could tell that his thoughts were continuously about those things and when he left I found great hope because I thought that young man if he'll continue to pursue truth and really let it lead God will begin to work in that young man what's more concerning to me are religious per se religious people who give the appearance of religion but never truly contemplate eternal things this young man's mind was completely enveloped on his stuff upon his future And upon all the carnal things that might come to play, all the ease and the comfort that might be ahead of him. I'm going to say something that maybe people don't agree with, but having taught in 10 years for the public school system, in the very least, the harm that they are doing is putting into people's minds all that matters are carnal things even if they're not doing these extreme things that you see on the news, in the very least, the care that they're putting out in front of the children is, what matters is things down here. And what is absent is that what truly matters are spiritual eternal things. Here this man, God says tonight, I'm going to begin to close by saying this, what if the reality was, this night God's going to require your soul of me? Excuse me, require your soul of you. Yesterday, Brother Harvey said something a little interesting. I don't know if you noticed, it was very passing. In saying it, and I won't get it exactly the way he said it, but he basically said, if he dies or if a Christian dies, it's an improvement in their state. It was just a blip in what he said yesterday. And yet such a profound one, isn't it? Like for every person has truly been born again. All that lies before us is an improvement beyond our imaginations. As much as you may fear the unknown of it, let me reassure you with the Apostle Paul. Jesus has conquered death and you ought to have no fear of death whatsoever. And so when I consider death and God has revealed to my heart the real truth of it, I can say with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die is just a gain. You know, very often when I contemplate, you know, I thought about since that shooting yesterday, I thought about what, you know, what if my sister had been there? What if I had been there? That's somewhere that I could see myself if I had gone and visited home, casually going back to just to see the changes. And so, you know, your mind does this trickling, what if you'd been back there and what if something terrible would have happened? And then you think about your children and those left behind. But I am, I am confident of this one thing, that whatever God would allow me to leave behind, he has the power to take care and to sustain it. This man was thinking all those things and then he looked at him and said, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. And if we could just, if God could help you to peel back for just a moment in your mind, if you're saved, imagine being in this man's state. Imagine that all you have focused on all you have labored towards is the gratification of tomorrow. Only to realize tomorrow is never coming. And suddenly, the days and weeks and years of contemplation of that enjoyment. Well, I would say our culture does that today with retirement. Right? Not that it's not wise. Proverbs tells us that we need to lay up for tomorrow. And it's a wise thing to do. But if that's where our treasure is, if that's where our hope is at, if that's where our obsession is, that if I can just get to 62 or 65 or 67, if I can just get to that magic number, then all of my cares will be fine. You've been deceived. That's not what matters. Rather, what about the lost people that are around you? What if Jesus says to them tonight, This day, your soul will be required of you. Not only will this man not rest easy, I don't believe his friends that know the Lord will rest easy to you. Like, don't you have people in your life that if God required their souls tonight, you wouldn't be able to rest. Why? Because perhaps you have neglected their soul. You've neglected your concern for their soul. So, this man gave all of it up. All of his stuff was abandoned to someone else. And Jesus, in speaking this, poses this this harsh question that has to be posed to anyone whose affections are down here. Now that your soul is required of you, who's going to enjoy all of these things? Or of what value do these things have anymore? value at all. So I want to say this, and I'm going to close. So what ought to be the attitude of your and my heart? Lost, saved, confused, whomever. Well, the first thing is that our heart and our mind ought to be 100% oriented on the Lord. On heavenly things, on eternal things, our minds daily ought to be provoked, and the habits of our life, the things and people that we put in our life ought to be all placed there intentionally to provoke us to consider spiritual and eternal things. And those things that might ultimately detract, those temptations that we know grab a hold of us beyond what they ought, we ought to cut out of our life and amputate those things. Knowing that whenever Satan is able to steal our mind, he'll reach down to our hearts and he'll sift those things from from contemplating and thinking on eternity. And lost friend, if I were you, that's something that I would constantly do is I would have my heart oriented completely to, Lord, I need to make things right with you now and everything in my life. I will delay tomorrow. I will delay the things of tomorrow. I will uh, delay the gratifications of tomorrow. I'm going to have an obsessive attitude about you and where the condition of my soul stands. Listen, you may not feel God's convicting power, Well, then set your affections on getting it. Beg the Lord. What is inexcusable is aloofness. What is inexcusable is just saying, ah, I don't really care right now. I'm not feeling it. As you draw nigh to God, God will draw nigh to you. And so maybe you ought to draw nigh and say, Lord... Please, please, maybe open your Bible. You know, a favorite question you could ask your pastor is, what should I be reading in my Bible? Can you show me what I could read that might recalibrate my heart and reset it towards spiritual things? If you're confused, you ought to do the same thing. You ought to not find rest until you know, because consider this for a moment. When the saint dies, we're immediately ushered into inexpressible glory. And all the former pains are forgotten. And all is known is a, um, is a joy and a glory that could never be comprehended. If a person is lost like this man evidently was, the moment God requires your soul of you, What must be the most terrifying thing when a person opens their eyes in hell? I don't know this. This is a guess. Is not just the indescribable pain that a person might feel. But it's perhaps moments after they get there, the realization that they're never going to escape. Today, my second son, Emmett, had his teeth pulled, a couple teeth pulled. You know, that was one of the consolations that we gave him. You're going to feel a little pinch for just a moment, and then it's going to be over. And we got him through that part, and then the doctor began to extract the tooth. And he said, just, it'll only take about 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And so the consolation, the peace in his mind that we were trying to bring was in the knowledge that in just a few moments, the pain you're feeling now will completely be over. And yet, what about that person who opens their eyes in hell? they're in this inexpressible pain and then the knowledge I'm never escaping what about the person who is confused what about you that sit here tonight that don't know where you stand with the lord imagine this man imagine in another setting perhaps you're on you know you're going to die you're laboring breath, something's come upon you. You know, there's been a lot of people this year who died of COVID the last couple of years and they were getting closer and they were inching closer and they were inching closer and they were inching closer. and Any number of things, I'm not trying to fear monger tonight. I'm just saying any number of things can cause where you're conscious that I am headed that direction. And imagine the heightened fear that you would feel never having made peace with God for certain. I would imagine as you step closer and closer and closer to the uncertainty. What fear that would cause that you're either about to enter a place that is unimaginably wonderful. Or or, or enter into a place that is unimaginably tormenting. That there is no in between. And you don't know. God wants you to know. God wants you to have assurance that you might find additional joy and satisfaction in the... No- you know, there is a fellowship that I can have with God in the knowledge of what happens to me after I die. Like, me and God fellowship about that. I rejoice with God that I. it is only a short time before I join Him and I have great peace and joy in knowing that. And I celebrate that with God in my prayer that God, it is just a few more days and I'm going to join you and all of this sorrow is put behind and I'm grateful to him for that assurance. But would imagine inching closer and closer and closer and not knowing. You don't have to be that way tonight. Won't you orient your life towards knowing? This evening, this man's heart and mind was focused on everything else. And none of it came to matter. If you're lost tonight, here's the warning. Life is more than what the things are. Life consists of more than the abundance of things. No, what truly matters is whether your heart is right with God or not. That's all that really matters. So if you know you're not right with God tonight, won't you make it right with God? Won't you at least strive and seek to make things right? Lest you be confronted with the same reality this man was. Tonight, your soul being required of you. Brother Danny, if we could have a song. If you're lost tonight and you feel as though you need to pray, this altar is open and you're welcome to come up here and to pray. I'll say this, if you've never prayed publicly before and you have felt God drawing you to pray, pray, I would imagine more and more that you feel it and the more and more you resist, the bigger and bigger the fear grows. Don't let it. It's very simple. If God is calling you to seek after Him, respond to His calling and forget about everything else. Forget about the things we sing. Forget about the things that we say. You pursue God and God alone. And seek to be made right with Him. And tonight, you can go home being made right to Him. I've said this a few times before. There is no virtue in coming up to this bench. There's no virtue in this bench. There's no power here. But there is virtue in the humility it takes to sometimes publicly come and pray. Because very often, people are so ashamed and so embarrassed. And you've made it all about you. But there is a virtue in saying, I don't care about anything else but pursuing God. And I don't care what people think about it. And so if God is drawing you, I can say for my own account, there were times where I sat in the pews. And I felt drawn to get up and walk down the aisle and pray. Because it was a way of me acknowledging to the world, I need God and I don't care who knows about it. It may not be your situation. It may be your situation. Regardless of whether it is or not, if God is calling you, won't you seek him to die? Let's all stand and sing.